All right, all right. So, we are we are speaking about spiritual flourishing. We are the 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 thesis that we're taking is that God designed us to flourish, that we are supposed to do well. We're supposed to flourish in all these areas of our lives. Today, we begin one of the next seven weeks. We're going to be speaking very practically. Today, I'm speaking about spiritual flourishing. Then Ollie's going to be speaking about physical flourishing. Riley's going to be speaking about mental flourishing. We're going to speak about flourishing in the workplace, vocational flourishing. We're going to speak about relational flourishing, emotional flourishing, and financial flourishing. And we're just going to look at each of these areas that God calls us to flourish. But they aren't silos. They all actually work together. All of them are God looking at our lives and going, I designed you to flourish. And then we spoke in our first week in our introduction about how we broke that. Not just Adam and Eve, but how you and I have sinned and walked away from the paths that God designed us to walk in. So we are are kind of, as we're going, um, um, trying to help us redefine what flourishing looks like because in our cultural lens, we have these ideas of flourishing or wealth or being an influencer or fame or whatever it might look like or our nice house with a white picket fence and 2.5 children and this is what flourishing looks like, right? And actually we're trying to redefine it and say biblically, what does it mean to flourish? How can we look at Jesus on the cross and recognize the pain that he's going through and the suffering that he's going through and yet at the same time say, did his life flourish? And answer, yes. He fulfilled what God had called him to fulfill and we are so grateful for the flourishing life of Jesus. But in that moment, did it look like Jesus was flourishing? Not at all. And so we begin to see that there's a a disconnect between what I hold as Paul's view of cultural flourishing and the biblical view of flourishing. And so each, each week we're trying to just help understand a little more of what this flourishing actually looks like. So today I've brought a prop. This is not just some random thing happening over here. This is my prop. And I want to um, help us understand a little bit more as we try and define what biblical flourishing is. And if you, I'm going to have to explain it to you a little bit, but if you can see this on papers, and if there was a wind, these papers would be blowing around, right? So you've got to engage your imaginations this morning. But these papers over here, and then I've got this strange thing, and this is a paperweight holding those papers in place. And we're asking the question, is this paperweight flourishing? Is it doing its job? Is it fulfilling its potential? Is the question. All right? And as a paperweight... It seems to be doing fine. It's pretty heavy. If you had to come and feel it, it's quite a heavy thing. The paperweight would hold it down absolutely perfectly. And this is another way we're looking or thinking about what flourishing is. Is it doing a good job? Is it fulfilling its potential? But actually, what you don't know is that this is a uh, Apple keyboard. And it's, it's really incredible. It really is. I mean, I'm, an, I'm not an Apple salesman. And I'm not doing like one of those, you know, Apple things that they do, those little presentations where they show their new products. But this thing is amazing. It takes my iPad and just magnetically, my iPad clicks onto this. Just, it's, I know I sound like an old guy who's like fascinated by the, by the interweb, but just bear with me. It really is amazing. And I don't have like a mouse on, on my iPad, but when I click it in here, I've got a little mouse pad. And suddenly I've got like a mouse, right? And I can do all these incredible things. And so let me ask you again, is it fulfilling its potential? As a paperweight, it's useful, it's doing something helpful, but man, it's nowhere near what the designer created it for. When someone began to dream about this little case, 
and to think about what it was purposed for. It's nowhere near what it's supposed to be. And I think so many of our lives are like this little iPad case. that We're using them for paperweights. We're using them to pursue our careers or to amass wealth, which we're just going to leave behind when we die anyway. And we use our lives for all these things or we give ourselves over as if that's the purpose of our lives. And somewhere we've got to stop and we're trying in the series to ask the question, did God create you for what you're doing and only that? Or are we missing a whole path group of pathways that God says, come and walk in my ways. I have so much more for you. I designed you for so much more. Does that make sense? That's the the kind of, as we're trying to define flourishing, just week after week, we're going to keep talking, trying to help us rethink flourishing, because this is, it's deep in our hearts how we flourish, right? But what we are, what we're talking about flourishing, godly flourishing today Really what I'm speaking about is a day where I walk into heaven one day and my father looks at me and goes, well done, good and faithful servant. What I purposed for you, what I planned for your life, you did it. What I wanted you to fulfill, you fulfilled. That's, that's spiritual flourishing. Not your holiday home in Amarnas, as nice as it may be, and I'd love to go there sometime. But that's not spiritual flourishing. Well done, good and faithful servants. All right, so as I've said already a few times, today we're going to be speaking about how we flourish spiritually. And really, I can't make this point strongly enough. It's, we're doing it to be helpful, separating them out into little groups, but actually it's, it's our whole lives flourishing. It's a little unhelpful to go spiritual flourishing, then physical, then this, but it's also helpful because it helps us to examine them a little bit one at a time, all right? But it's really important for us to realize that God doesn't just des- desire or, or hope that we will, will flourish spiritually. It's not kind of like just this desire in our hearts. Actually, He designed us to flourish, just, just think about that for a moment. He didn't, it's not just like a hope or like, I hope this person is able to follow in my paths. God actually hardwired us. He put this desire. That's why we seek so hard after earthly things that we think are going to bring us flourishing because God put this desire inside of us. But as we spoke about in the weeks gone by, God created us to flourish, but we were cheated into death. And so we sinned. And we walked away from God's paths and God's design and God's intent for our lives. And all the struggles that we have are as a a result of that broken sin in our lives. But I want us to remember that God did not design us this way. God designed us to walk with Him, to have communion with Him, to live in step with Him. God desires friendship. God desires walking together. Okay, what we're going to do today is we're going to do an identikit for the spiritual flourisher. So we're going to speak about what would it look like? What what is a person who's a spiritual flourisher? What do they look like? Who comes to mind for you? I bet you someone in your life has influenced you, a youth leader. I had a youth leader called Paul Gibbs. He'd been a youth leader for Josh Fisher. So if you guys, that's Nathan Fisher over there with Mandy and their little children. His father was an elder in our church until, what, like five years ago when they moved away. 
His dad is years and years older than me. Paul Gibbs was Josh Fisher's youth leader. Paul Gibbs was my youth leader, I think 20 years later. And I think it was about five years ago that Paul Gibbs handed over that youth, and I'm 41. So him and his wife have been leading that youth group for years and years. I used to drive for a, for a short period of my life. I used to drive from my home to school, which was about an hour each way. And Uncle Paul Gibbs used to take us. And we used to have these debates. He was a brethren and quite conservative. And I was uh, Pentecostal and charismatic. And we'd have these, these long debates in the car. But when you watch someone's life like this, you realize like there's something flourishing. There's something about a, a granny or a grandpa or a pastor or someone that you know that's influenced your life. And you look at their lives and you say, well, what is it about them that makes them flourish? All right? And so the, but actually, we're gonna, I'm going I'm to go a little bit reverse way around this morning. Sorry, I'm a little bit all over the place, but hopefully... Are you following me? Okay. So I'm being clear enough. All right. The first thing I want to do is actually talk about counterfeits. Because I think there's quite a few ways that we look at someone, like a Paul Gibbs or like someone else, and we go, oh my goodness, they are flourishing because dot, dot, dot. They're spiritually flourishing. And I actually think there's some, some real common counterfeits which are helpful for us to recognize and for us to see in our own lives, right? And the thing about a counterfeit, the thing that's, that's really fascinating is that it's actually based on something good. You take a Nike product, which is great. I want the Nike product. And someone counterfeits it and sells it in the Mozambican market or wherever it is or in the Transcar. I've got a beautiful Adidas hat, which is actually, I think, genuine because it's lasting forever from my June holidays in the Transcar. But it's, it's something good. It's the real thing. And then the counterfeit makes a cheap imitation of it. And so these things, as I speak about these counterfeits, none of them are bad. All of them are good things. But the devil comes and twists what God intended for good and makes it a counterfeit. And so it tempts us to look in on people's lives. Let's go. There's only four of them very quickly. The first counterfeit is this. The more I know, the more mature, the more mature I am. The more I know, the more mature I am. And this is the Western world. We are so susceptible to this. I keep on speaking about this in our pulpit. And I keep on speaking about this in Stellenbosch because it's a particular problem here in our town that this intellectual idea that if we understand it, if we study long enough, if we sharp enough, if we can philosophize about it, then we are really mature in it. Right? And we often look at people in our life group who can quote the Bible or who understand lots of parts of the Bible, and we go, oh my goodness, they are so spiritually mature. And then we watch them go through like a relational thing, and they act like a two-year-old. And you're like, how do you act like a two-year-old when you know so much of the Bible? Because it's, it can be a counterfeit. Now, is it good to know lots of the Bible? 100%. Is it good to have Nike shoes? 100%. Just don't get the counterfeit. Alright? If you think, if you've got any doubt on this one, just think about the Pharisees. The most learned of the most learned of the most learned. They know way more than any pastor you're going to sit under in your lifetime. And yet Jesus regularly, John the Baptist regularly rebukes them. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? You brood of vipers. He calls, that's, that's not a compliment, not even a backhanded compliment, right? You smell like a tomb. Some of the language that he uses. The second counterfeit is that the longer I've been saved, the more mature I am. 
There's this idea in Christian circles that the length of time in service, the length of time from when I wrote in my Bible the date that I got saved, and it's now 50 years later or 20 years later, whatever it might be, that I am now mature in God. And friends, again, you've got to spot the difference here, right? We should grow in maturity with God. Those who follow Jesus for a long time should be mature. But simply the length of time you follow Jesus can be a counterfeit. If that's all we think we need. If you just think you're going to come and if you're going to serve Jesus for 40 years and whatever, however you like, whatever you don't, don't have your quiet time, do have your quiet time, do go to church, don't go to church, do whatever you want and you're just going to grow by some process of osmosis. That's the thing I'm trying to put a bullet in its head. Just because you've done anything for a long time doesn't make you good at it. Right? Think about being a student. Case in point, you've been a student for a very, very long time. You're probably not a good student. You've probably done first year four times, right? If you're a parent, this rings true too. Just because you've been a parent for a long time, yes, you grow in experience. Yes, you hopefully get better, but it doesn't make you a good parent. You work to be a good parent. You think, you meditate, you figure it out. You ask God, you ask your wife to help, right? The third counterfeit is the more I sound the part, the more mature I am. This one worries me in the church. Super spiritual sounding. I had a dream and you're not Martin Luther, you know. These spiritual sounding things can actually be so scary for people. I'm telling you right now, a lot of people don't come to pray and fast because of the super spiritual among us. And you don't feel that you can stand and pray in a group of four people because they all sound like Christians and, and you sound like you know, someone who came out of like a gothic band, you know. Like, you don't, you don't have any of the lingo. You don't have any of the Christianese. And these guys pray like they, you know. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying the language is a problem. It's wonderful to grow in genuine revelation of God taking us into deep places in our lives. But if that's what we're basing it on, this kind of Christianese flowery prayer, super spiritual experiences and super spiritual sounding language, friends, that does not equal maturity. Some of the most super spiritual people I know are some of the shallowest Christians. True story. Some of the most super spiritual sounding churches I know produce the worst disciples. It's a counterfeit. And the last little counterfeit that I want to highlight is the busier I am doing Christian things, the more mature I am. The Western church, we run around program after program after program after busy thing after busy thing after busy thing because we think that that's going to somehow prove that we are mature in God. Should we do things for God? Absolutely. Ephesians. We were prepared. Each and every single one of you who follow Jesus, the Bible says you were prepared for good works. Before the foundation of the world, God called you, chose you, and made good works for you to do. Of course we are supposed to do things, but we are not supposed to bounce from Christian experience to Christian experience, from Christian experience like chickens without our heads on, just busy, busy, busy. No time for my quiet time this week. No time for prayer this week. That's a counterfeit. All right, I hope those are helpful. Um, why am I raising these counterfeits? Because as we journey with the Lord year after year, we begin to believe some of these things. When I thought, when I stopped and I thought, what do I think spiritual flourishing is? Some of these things came to my mind. I want us to examine our hearts and ask questions like, am I still hungry for God? If you've been serving Jesus for, for 40 years, for 30 years, for, for a long 
period of time are you just settled down in your maturity I know what it's about I don't need to come to you and your members course I've been a member in 25 churches I don't need to go to church anymore because I've heard 5,227 sermons in my life and you just 40 what am I going to learn from you like if these are the things that begin to build in our in our hearts friends I want to I want to throw up these counterfeits and say I think we're beginning to live in some of our mature because dot 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 and it's a counterfeit I hear sometimes in my own life even I regurgitate things that I learned long ago This is what God spoke to me in 1999. This is what happened on the mission trip I went on back when I was younger, when I was really doing things for God. And this is not a, I'm not speaking only to the older folk in our midst this morning. Guys, this is for every single one of us. The challenge is, am I hungry now for God? Am I learning something now for God? I love, I love my family, the the Hudson side, my, my dad's side of the family. I love, that growing up in this family, someone, someone would often ask you an uncomfortable question, like, what has God said to you this week? It's a hard question to kind of sidestep, you know. It's a good question. Sometimes I feel like we, we live off microwave food, you know, like the leftovers that happened years and years ago, and we just put it in the microwave and push 30 seconds, and, and it comes out warm, and it's edible, it's fine. But man, it doesn't, it doesn't smell or taste like a roast chicken. It's just come out the oven with potatoes, crispy potatoes, and beans with bacon, you know? It's not the same, it's not the same thing. And so I want to just remind us to reject counterfeit spiritual flourishing. It's easy to settle. It's easy to just say, I'm going to follow Jesus for, the, for a long time. I'm just going to get very busy with Christian things. I'm going to look the part. I'm going to sound the part. I'm going to speak super spiritual language. I'm going to just spend all my time just learning more and more and more and more and more and more about the Bible. Is that that's the point? Is that I'm not supposed to live it out? It's easy, and I'm challenging us, guys. Let's not buy these counterfeits. All right. That's the. I wanted to start with the negative because I hate ending with that. And now we want to go into well, what does it look like? And then we're going to finish off. I'm just going to do three points, and then we're going to finish off with the game. As I promised you, week on week, we're going to look at Jesus and ask, well, how did he flourish spiritually? How did? What do we learn from Jesus? Because if we're not doing this in our own strength, we, we're looking at Jesus. So we're going to speak about a, a spiritual flourishing Christ follower identikit. How do you recognise one in the wild? Is the question. How do you recognize a flourishing Christ follower? There's three priorities I'm going to give you this morning. Just three. The first one is that a spiritual flourisher, if you want to recognize them, they prioritize God's priorities. I'm going to give you three priorities. They prioritize God's priorities. Turn with me to the book of Haggai. Very unusual book, but it's stunning. I spent weeks in this book devotionally last year. Haggai chapter 1 and verse 5. I think is one of the clearest pictures of of non-flourishing that you can find in the Bible. I'll read it for us. I'm in the NRV to this morning. It says, Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. He's speaking to Israel. He says, Give careful thought to your ways. Won't you say that with me? Give careful thought to your ways. Okay, We've been speaking these last weeks about pausing, stopping, thinking. That's a beautiful little line for it. Give careful thought to your ways. Then he carries on. God speaking says, You have planted much, but harvested little. 
You eat, but never have enough. What a horrible feeling. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. I I don't think there's a better scriptural verse for non-flourishing. Like everything you do feels unsatisfying. Like this money you made, it just goes like holes in your pocket. Maybe some of you this morning are feeling like that. Then God carries on and he says, well, through the prophet Haggai, says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Can I ask you to say it with me again? Give careful thought to your ways. And God says, go up into the mountain and bring down timber and build my house. He's speaking about his temple, if you're unfamiliar with that language. Where God dwells among his people, Israel, so to speak. He says, come and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I just blew it away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty. Why is your life not flourishing? Is the question that I want to ask out of this text this morning. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. The ESV, I think it is, says you live in your paneled houses. There's this picture of them going and finding these exotic trees and cutting panels or planks and making their houses all beautiful while God's temple lies in ruin. Verse 10, Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, and the earth its crops are called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. See, I want to draw out of this text that the thing that struck me so much when I read this devotionally last year and I spent, I don't know, like maybe three or four weeks in this Haggai 1, God just caught my heart. And I was saying, Lord, what does it mean today? What does it mean today? I don't have a temple to go and prioritize. I don't have a building to go and worry about. And, you know, and it's not just about maintenance on my house, this passage. It's about more. What are you, what are you saying? And I felt like God spoke to me through this passage and said, it's my priority versus your priority. For these people, the problem was that they were just concerned about their thing. It was their house. It was what they were were worshipping, what they wanted to do. Their whole lives were given over to what they were thinking. And God says, you've forgotten about what's important to me. You've forgotten about my house, about worshipping me, about the place where you come and worship me. You've forgotten all about that. And you just worried about your house. Therefore, hey, because I love you, You plant a lot of seed, and hardly anything comes up. You eat delicious food, and afterwards you feel dissatisfied, like McDonald's. Right? You you drink the best wine, but afterwards you just, uh, just want more. And God puts this dissatisfaction in our hearts. Spiritual flourishing is when we prioritize what matters to God over and above what matters to me. That's why my first point is prioritizing God's priorities. Spiritual flourishing is worrying about God's house more than 
my house, if that makes sense in this language of Haggai. Spiritual flourishing is trusting God for a reprioritizing of what is truly important to walk in His ways. So we've been saying over and over again that it's saying to God, Lord, what do you want me to do? What is it that's important on your heart? Let me do that thing. Well, let's see how the people respond in Haggai. We go down to verse 12, and it says, Then Zerubbabel, great name if you're pregnant and looking for a son's name, Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, Joshua, son of Jodak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. And the story continues with them now beginning to put aside their priorities, their houses, and going and rebuilding the house of God and laying the foundations. And you can go and read the book of Haggai. It's a very precious book. And then in the end of chapter 2, so we've got God giving them this command, then we see how the people respond, and then we see how God responds. And this is what God says. It's a little bit of a, 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 it's like that long on my page. It's a bit longer. But I'll just read it for you quickly, and we're going to say something together. Verse 15, now give careful thought. Just say that with me. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Okay, a little bit of context here. This is when they have now laid the foundation of the temple. They've just laid the foundation and God comes to them and says, now you are taking what I take seriously. This is what's going to happen. He says, consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. It's the same idea of non-flourishing again. I struck all the works of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, he literally gives them the day that they laid the foundation stone. He says, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. God's saying, you have not been blessed, you have not been blessed, you have not flourished, you have not flourished. He says, now mark this day in your diary. Write down today, the day that you began to prioritize what God said was important over what you think is important. And he says, from this day on, I will bless you. No longer will you drink and long for more. And that's not a passage about fences either. <laughs> no longer will you eat and feel dissatisfied. No longer will you plant a field and wait in vain for rain. Friends, on this point, prioritizing God's priorities, I want you to think about people you know who are spiritually flourishing. Think about that person. Think about my Paul Gibbs or your gran or someone you know, a life group leader, who it may be, that, they, that you look at their lives and it looks like they're growing and producing godly fruit. I bet if you reflect on their lives, you will see that they hold God's priorities higher than their own. Not every time, not all the time, but that the trajectory of their lives is that it seems that they are more interested in building God's kingdom than their own kingdom. It seems that they're more interested with the ways of God than the latest U magazine trends. It seems that they're more interested in the conversations that they have are a good sign of this. They, they peppered with God. 
I love spending time with people who are spiritually flourishing. It's, it normally is people who've walked with God for a long time. But when they speak, it's not just about the weather or the football or about these things. And some of those things are even precious to me. But it's not just about those things. It's, it's just all the time they seem to speak about God. God is important to them. God is prioritized in their lives. What God's doing, what God's doing around the world, what God's speaking to them. Hey, what did God tell you this week? It's the kind of question they like asking. Friends, and this is, this is not just a full-time minister's job to, to prioritize God's kingdom. This is your job in the marketplace. This is your job when you're studying. This is every single one of us. Not one of us is exempt. I don't even like the term full-time. We're all full-time. I just get paid to do this. I'm a very lucky person to get prayed, to get paid, to get prayed, you can pray for me too, but to get paid to study God's word is an incredible, incredible privilege. But every single one of us in our daily walk are meant to prioritize the things of God. And let me just acknowledge, this is not easy. I'm not preaching at you as one who's like, guys, come on, so simple. This is, Johanna said it so beautifully in our prayer meeting last weekend. This is us on an altar trying to wriggle off. That's the, that's the picture, right? Come and die. But I don't want to. There comes the knife. Try and get yourself off that altar. That's, that's the biblical kind of language around. Come and die. His paths over my paths is difficult. To walk in God's desires over my own desires is difficult. And you can, you can feel this in the most simple little ways. I want to watch Liverpool, not at the moment because they're playing terribly, but usually I love Liverpool and I want to, I'm, I'm like, I want to go and sometimes as I'm about to go and like watch a game or something, I'll feel like this little prompt to rather go and spend 15, 20 minutes in prayer. You know how hard that is? And you know how silly it is that it's hard? When I stop and I look, I zoom out and I go, ridiculous of course prayer of course this is what you preach Paul come on but in the moment my heart is revealed because in the moment it's you've got it it's difficult so I'm not trying to just throw out charismatic optimistic it's easy it's trite friends but God's promise is that when we prioritize what he prioritizes we will spiritually flourish so that's the first part of a person. You look in on their lives, and it's an identikit. You look in their lives, they prioritize God. The second one is this. They prioritize God's presence. They prioritize God's priorities, number one. They prioritize the presence of God, number two. The most clear text in God's word with this actual word flourish is Psalm 92. If you go and look at the Psalm 92, you'll find that this word flourish is there a number of times. And we'll just read from verse 12. It says, The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a, a cedar of Lebanon. So these are metaphors of these trees in Israel that grow tall. And, and as they get older, they produce the palm tree produces more and more fruit as it, as it grows in age. And then it says this beautiful little line, Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. Just think on that line a little bit. Planted... In the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no wickedness 
in him. Friends, there's two key thoughts when we think about being in the presence of God. The first one is that we were made by God and God holds the user manual for your life. I mean, just, I'd love to, Shana, let me just use you as, as, a, as a guinea pig here. Just in Shana, if we had to look at her life, do you know that God created Shana in that womb over there, in that family over there, there's her parents, and has a user manual for what your life should look like to flourish. Like he actually knows what Shana's life is supposed to look like. The decisions, the person that she might or might not marry, the, all the different things that she's going to do, the job that she's in, the fit, the things she studied, all of these things, God has a user manual for all of our lives, not just Shana, it's a big wide thing that God knows because he made me, he knows what I was made for, not just a paperweight. He knows much more than, I, I've probably just figured out a few things that this thing can do. Maybe it can do a whole bunch of other stuff, like microwave my coffee when I'm in my office and it's cold. can do that too. But that's the first thought, is that we were, we were made, we were, we were created in order to flourish. But it's more than that. It's more than just God saying, here's a path that you can flourish on. It's also God saying, you flourish in my presence. Did you notice that this tree was planted in the courts of God? That's where this tree grows, in the house of the Lord, in the courts of our God. Being, so it's not just the path of flourishing, it's being in the presence of God that takes us to flourishing. In other words, let me try and say it another way for us to try and, I was trying to figure out how to say this helpfully. We were made for the environment of God. We were made for the environment of God. That's where this seed, Paul, that's where this seed, when it dies and grows, that's the soil I grow in. That's the environment that I flourish in, is the environment of God himself. We will never flourish somewhere else. Plant yourself anywhere else, and you will not flourish. Plant yourself in wealth, you will not flourish. Plant yourself in travel, you will not flourish. Plant yourself in family and keeping your family all wonderful and, and your kids and they're going to just be so great and it's going to be wonderful. You will not flourish if that is where you plant your life. You plant your life in the Lord Jesus. You plant your life in the presence of God. And from that, yes, our families flourish. Yes, he may make some of you, make some of you wonderfully wealthy. He may do all these things, but we're not planted there. Planted in the presence of God. When... When we come to Christ, guys, we are like these palm trees. Ephesians that we've been, we studied over the last year mostly, it speaks so beautifully. It gives these crazy metaphors. You were dead, and now you've been made alive. Once you were not adopted, once you were not chosen, now you are chosen. No, that's, that's theologically incorrect. Scrap that from the record. Once you were not ad adopted, now you are called sons and daughters of the Most High God. This is this image of you're taken out of this garden, you're dead in that garden, and you're brought over here, and God says, I plant you in my presence. It's this botanical image, and you begin to grow and flourish. I found that so helpful, thinking about the presence of God and being in the environment. It's not just a pathway. We're not just learning a philosophy. We're not just learning a few tricks here to flourish. We're not just going to say, well, tie and you'll flourish, or do this and you'll flourish. 
We're saying, no, you must plant your life in the presence, in the court of God, in the house of God like this palm tree, and you will grow up and you'll produce more fruit as you, as you age, not less. Those of you in your, in your, in your post-40 years, right? We should be producing more fruit than we did in our 20s. We should be more committed to the local church. Our money should be more impactful in the kingdom of God. Our homes should be more open. More, more, more. We should be producing more fruit. Something in our heart longs to be near God, to be planted in the courts of our God, to be in His presence. And then I'm aware that there's probably some of you here this morning who say, Paul, you don't know me. You don't know my sin. You don't know what I got up to just this week. I'm disqualified from being close to God. God doesn't want me in his garden. I'm a a weed. God doesn't want me close to him. You don't know me. Friend, you don't know God. You don't know that this is the God who specializes in the sinful. This is the God who delights in the broken. This is the God where Peter, who's going to become the rock upon which... The church is founded, the, the, the first great leader of God's church. When, when Jesus does a miracle in front of Peter, Peter falls on his knees and says, Depart from me, leave me alone, Lord. He says, I'm a sinful man. Leave me. I'm not fit for your garden. <laughs> Just imagine Jesus in his head going, Peter, I know even more than you do. I know. This is, this is why I came. Jesus himself says, in response to the criticism of the Pharisees, why do you hang out with all these sinners all the time? Why are you with these people? And Jesus says, because it's not the, it's not the healthy who go to the doctor. It's the sick. It's when you're sick, you run off to Dr. Squinby's offices. That's where you go when you're sick, not when you're healthy. You don't go there for a chat and a coffee, although that is also very nice. You go there when you're sick. And Jesus is saying, when you're sick, when you realize that you're not in the environment that you're supposed to be planted in. Don't say, I'm disqualified. I can't come near. You're in the very place where where God is able to help you. That's the person that God constantly in His Word helps again and again and again. I love this text in Hebrews chapter 4. It says, therefore, speaking about Jesus, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Now this is the part here, listen to this. For we do not have a high priest, speaking about Jesus, I know the language is a bit confusing, just stay with it. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness because we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he did not sin. I love that text. It's such a grace-filled text that Jesus understands my sin Because he lived here. He lived among us. It's a great comfort. And then it says this. So then, or let us, then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Speaking about coming into the presence of God. And the example Hebrews gives is, hey, hey, we know you're sinful. Jesus wasn't sinful. But he understands that you're sinful because he came and lived among you. Hey, so because of that, guess what? Come into the presence of God with confidence. And it carries on and says, 
so that you may receive mercy. How many of us need to receive mercy? That, that word means getting what you don't deserve. Receiving what you don't deserve. That's mercy. And find grace to help in your time of need. So in the moment where you're like in the most trouble, in your time of need, you're able to go, Father, with confidence, I can step into your presence. Not away, because that's what happens, right? Always we want to sow fig leaves. Adam and Eve, we realize our brokenness, we want to sow our fig leaves and run away. Hide. Actually, the Bible teaches the complete opposite. In our moment of need, because Jesus lived among us and understands our weakness, we're able to go, God, I know I'm made for your environment. I know I'm made from your presence. Everything in me tells me I need to run away. But actually, I know that I need to stay planted right here. Please plant me. Please dig around my tree. Please put fertilizer. Please waterlize me. Please, (laughs) Please water me, God. Please make me grow. Please make me flourish. Amen? When you think about people like this, the identikit, when you think about people who you know, who prioritize the presence of God, you will see godly fruit all over their lives. I love finding a prayer. I love finding someone who you can just tell that they spend hour upon hour in God's presence in prayer. That's one way we do it. I love finding people who when they read God's word, they get emotional. I had a conversation with one of my uncles um, this week, and it just struck me again. As, you, as We were just talking about general things. He was busy building his little porch, and we are talking about his porch, and he, he mentions Jesus, and he tears over. And he says something about the gospel, and he tears over. It's a heart that's, that's soft, that's spiritually flourishing, that's, that's spending time in the presence of God. When we spend time in the presence of God, usually, this is certainly my experience, my tear ducts start working. That might not be you. But here's a fact. You will not find a prayerless person who is spiritually flourishing. That doesn't exist. You do not pray, you will not spiritually flourish. Have you noticed, when we think about our identikit of these kind of people, have you noticed how they love to worship God? They are worshippers. Friend, here's a, here's a fact, and you might find this a little harsh. If you do not love worship, you do not love God. I'll tell you why I say that. Because God lovers always worship Him. Those who love God always worship God. There are no exceptions. The only ones in the Bible who do not worship God are those who do not love God. We do not have a third option. It's those who follow God and those who don't. Those who love God and those who don't. Those who follow money and those who follow God. That's the options that we're given. And now let me just be very clear. I'm not talking about a certain brand of worship. I'm not talking about you love Bethel or you love, you know, Keith, what's his name? Back from the 1980s. What was those Maranatha music? If you're back in my, back in my world, in my day. So I'm not talking about any mode or method or we should only sing hymns or we should only sing new songs or we should only sing this. I'm not even talking about, about singing. I'm talking about a heart that is worshipful that wakes up and sees birds and sees trees and something in their heart goes, Oh, Lord, I love you. Something grateful in our heart, something that leaps up in recognition of God in our world. That's a worshiping heart. And friends, my my contention is that if you want to know how we flourish in the presence of God, we pray and we worship. These are two of the key things that we do, is that our hearts are worshipful. Friends, if you never find your heart full of praise, I want to ask you to examine your heart. Watch out. 
If you never find joy coming out of your mouth, joyful praise, whether you can sing or not, I don't care. Whether you sound awful, do you ever find praise on your lips? If your heart is seldom full of adoration, I'm asking you to be careful. Be careful. The last one I want to speak about this morning, and we're going to be done, is that the spiritual flourisher prioritizes eternity over the present. I want you to think about people you know who are spiritually flourishing. I keep on doing that because I'm trying to help us to see it in our lives. People who are growing and producing godly fruit. I bet that you see reflected in their lives that they seem to live somehow very aware of things to come. Strangely unattached to things here on earth. They crash their car and they're not all that worried. Someone steals something from their home and they're not all that worried. They seem strangely unattached to the things of this world. My, my gran was maybe the, the most um, helpful, I don't know if that's the right word, in this regard. My whole, I lived a lot of my early years in the, during the week with my gran, and she would often say things like, she would just sit on her chair, and just out of nowhere, she would just go, oh, I can't wait to be with Jesus. I just can't wait to be with Jesus. You know, I started calling her charismatic suicidal. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like we, we, we've caught something of heaven that's so wonderful that even death feels like, ah, oh, it's just going to be so quick. I'm going to be with my, I'm going to be with Jesus. I'm going to be with Jesus. And, and there's something of this eyes firmly fixed on eternity while at the same time passionately saying, God, but I want to fulfill what you've called me to do in my generation now. I want to fulfill that text in Ephesians, those good works that you've prepared. I want to do them, God. I don't want to get distracted. I don't want to get caught up in other things. When we see Jesus teaching on spiritual flourishing life, he regularly teaches and commands, and even with parables, he, he hammers on this theme. He says, don't store up treasures here. Don't worry about the present here. He says, store up treasures in heaven because here they're going to get stolen. Here the stock market's going to crash. Here this is going to happen. We're going to have a pandemic. This is what's, don't store up treasures here. Store them up there. He speaks to the rich young ruler and the rich young ruler, he says, do this, do this, do this, do this. And the rich young ruler turns to him and says, all those things I've done. And then he says, oh, one thing you haven't done, give, give all you have away. Give all you have away. And oh, he can't do that because he's obsessed with his present. The spiritual flourisher prioritizes eternity over the present. The parable of the pearl and the merchant and how this guy finds this one beautiful pearl and he sells everything. On and on I could go. So this is what Corinthians says, 2 Corinthians 4.18. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen since what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal. And obviously I couldn't say it any better than that. So in other words, we fix our eyes is another way of saying we prioritize. We make first what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Friends, I want to ask us, do we live like this? 
Do you live like this? Man, I love earthly things. I just finished in December reading the three, the trilogy of Lord of the Rings. My precious. This, this, this pull of the ring. It's fascinating. It's this, this is a Christ follower who wrote that book, and there's so much in there about the Holy Spirit and Jesus and the Father and all sorts going on. But man, something in my heart, it's not just you, it's me, guys. We, we, we resonate with this love for present, for here, for now. But I can touch it, I can feel it, I can sell it, I can buy it, I can do it, I can, I can measure it. But if I want a life that is truly spiritually flourishing, I take my heart before the Father again and again and again. And I say, Lord, show me again. I've forgotten, Lord. I've forgotten. Show me again. Show me again why what you have planned and purposed in eternity is more beautiful than what I could live for right now. Show me again why the career that I live, I want to live for your, for you and for your glory rather than for me and my bank account and my glory. Show me again because I've forgotten God. I've forgotten Maybe it's just me, or maybe it resonates with a few more people here. We're going to finish by talking about Jesus. Each week I've been finishing off just going, Christ, an example of flourishing. Because friends, if we try and do this by being better people, working harder, waking up earlier, you're going to fail. If we do not look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, if we do not access the power of the Holy Spirit to come and rejuvenate these dead parts of my heart and these sinful parts of my heart, if we do not look to Him, we will not be able to change anything for very long. We have to look at Jesus. So we ask just on these three things, how did Jesus prioritize God's priorities? What did He do? What did Jesus do when He wanted to prioritize God's priorities? Well, one of the things He says is, I only do what I see the Father do. We see it in the life of Jesus. I only do what I see the Father do. What's important to the Father, what He tells me to do, I do that. We see Jesus in His hardest moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. I speak about this often because it's precious. It's precious. It's this look into Jesus' life where Jesus is in this garden and He says, Father, can this cup be taken from me? Is there another way? Is, there, is, is, is this important or could I do something else? Is this your priority or is there another priority? Because I would much prefer another priority, Father. And God says to him, this is my way. And Jesus says, not my will. Not my path. Not my priority, but yours. We see it in the life of Jesus. How does Jesus prioritize God's presence? I love reading the Gospels with the lens on Jesus' devotional life. I love looking at Jesus' surprising... He does stuff that I just I can't fathom doing. He takes himself away to pray all the time, and that's fine. That I can get. That I'm like, okay, let's, I like some quiet. I've got five children at home. To get out and pray and have a walk around the neighborhood can be a very fulfilling um, exercise. But he, he says things like the disciples come to him and they say, Lord... Where have you been? The whole town is looking for you. Everyone's looking for you. You know what I would do? Oh, come on, back to the town. They want me. That's wonderful. Let's go preach. I'm doing God's work. I'm preaching. Jesus says, no, 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 no. We're going to carry on. God's got lots of children he wants to speak to, lots of people he wants to speak to. And off he goes. We see Jesus prioritizing God's presence When his disciples come to him, it's, it's, there's a few times actually in the Gospels where his disciples come to him and they, they go and get food. The disciples often seem to be going shopping. 
And they go buying food and they come back to Jesus. And then Jesus, on a, on a few occasions, one with the Samaritan woman at the well, another time on the boat, he says to them, I already ate. And then it goes like, what bread did he have? Who gave Jesus bread? And then he says to them, no, I have bread you don't know about. I've been in the presence of my father eating. I've been praying. I've been with my father. And we see in Jesus how he prioritized God's presence over and over again. Jesus seeks out time with his father. How did Jesus prioritize eternity, number three, over present? How did he show us that? What better description could we have than the cross of eternity over present? Hebrews 12, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured now, endured the cross, who for eternity, it's saying, forsook the present, scorning its shame, and now he sits down at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm going to take communion together. Can I ask you those three questions that I ask about Jesus? How does Jesus prioritize God's priorities? How does Jesus prioritize God's presence? And how does Jesus prioritize eternity over present? Friends, can I ask you, will we prioritize God's priorities? Will you? Will you prioritize the presence of God? Sometimes that means saying no to friends, no to another night out, no to watching Netflix, no to watching Liverpool, no to working those extra hours in the office. Will we prioritize God's presence? And will we ask God to constantly turn our hearts to prioritize eternity over the here and now? Father, as we come to this, these texts and trying to understand what it looks like to spiritually flourish, Lord, we just want to say one big thing, we need you. We know you created us from the very beginning to flourish and we feel the brokenness in us when we don't and how we drift from you and walk away from you and yet you so graciously call us back again and again and again and we need you. Jesus, as we take communion and we think on what you did in prioritizing God's priorities over your own, in thinking about eternity over the present in your life, would as we eat the bread and as we drink the wine, would it fill us with courage to do the same? Lord, I'm praying for practical change in our congregation. We're not praying for head knowledge. We're praying that you would come and in years to come, we would look back on this day and say something in my priorities shifted. On Sunday, whatever the date is today, 2023, something shifted in my heart. Something happened in my priority list. We pray these things in Jesus' name.